Hello, my name is Kelly Kelly. Welcome to the NICU Now audio support series. I am a NICU parent to Jackson, a micro preemie born at 24 weeks, and Lauren, a late-term preemie born at 34 weeks. I am also the founder and executive director of Hand to Hold, a national nonprofit dedicated to providing education, resources, and peer-to-peer support to families that have experienced premature birth, the loss of a baby, or have a child with a special healthcare need. Hand to Hold's NICU Now audio support series was developed to help NICU parents navigate their NICU journey. Today's topic, love and loss in the NICU. Despite tremendous medical advances in neonatology, sadly, some babies are unable to overcome the tremendous challenges they face at birth. I have not experienced the loss of a child. I cannot pretend to know the depths of grief that envelops a parent's heart at such a tragic loss. I have had the amazing opportunity to get to know and love many bereaved families through the years, and their strength is a constant source of inspiration. My dear friend, Kira Sorrells, co-founder of the Zoe Rose Memorial Foundation and president of the Premier Parents Alliance, wrote about the devastating sudden death of her 14-month-old daughter Zoe in an essay entitled Ladybug Whispers, a memoir of love, loss, and hope. A triplet born at 25 weeks and 6 days, Zoe spent 9 months in the NICU battling severe bronchopulmonary dysplasia. When she was rehospitalized at 14 months for complications related to flu and pneumonia, Kira and her husband were anticipating a transfer to another hospital for a potentially life-saving procedure. But Zoe coded five times in just eight hours. Finally, the doctor asked him the question no parent ever wants to hear. Do you want us to keep working, or do you want to hold your baby? When you've been witness to your infant fight ferociously against all odds to live, When you have watched them survive horrendous surgeries and have spent happy, life-filled moments with them amidst the trauma and crisis that exists when caring for a medically fragile infant, the thought that they could turn the corner again is ever-present in your mind, while the other thought that you push to the corner of your mind is that you have used up all your free passes, that the inevitable is now staring you in the face. Being the person to make the decision to stop all possibility of experiencing another miracle. Joining me today is licensed marriage and family therapist, Kara Wallen. Welcome, Kara. Hey, Kelly. I'm glad you're here today because I know that you are the parent of twins born at 26 weeks and that sadly William lived six days in the NICU before succumbing to the tremendous challenges that he faced at birth. So as a bereaved parent, your perspective is so important, but also as a therapist to help us help other families walk through this grief that I know they experience with the loss of this child. So will you talk to us a little bit about William and what you experienced when he passed in the NICU? Basically, when my boys were born, William was set with a whole different set of circumstances than Elliot was. In two days, they realized that he had a bilateral grade four brain bleed. Uh, They realized that he had a serious infection. And on top of that, his blood pressure was oscillating wildly. He was on the oscillating vent and he wasn't doing well. And within a few days, they told us that it wasn't looking like he would be able to make it out of the NICU. 
So, I mean, again, it's one of those circumstances that I don't know if I even have the language myself to describe what the experience was like. I can try to go there in reflecting on it. I can try to give it words to describe what it was like. The closest thing I can think of is that it was just like the entire world crumbled, you know. It just, everything, everything went away. Everything stops. Yeah. Everything stops. Well, I know it's tremendous grief. Mm-hmm. And grief takes many forms. And I just was hoping that we could have a discussion about some of the, the physical symptoms of grief mm-hmm. and help parents process what they're going through after the loss of a baby. Sure. Um, I think that, I mean, first off, I think one of the important things to be aware of if you're currently facing grief and bereavement is that our culture is almost hopelessly unaware of what the grief experience is and is in, as a culture, we are in denial that it exists. So you will feel alone. And it is very challenging to push against that feeling that nobody wants to hear the story that nobody even wants to acknowledge what happened, that especially particularly when it comes to neonatal death, stillbirth, it's sort of representative of these parts of life that we don't want to acknowledge. And so a lot of people, and not again, not having the words to even to know what to say to try and soothe someone, you end up feeling like you're in a cave by yourself dealing with this unfathomable loss. And you can even feel that way with your own partner in going through it. I would say that that's one of the first things to be aware of. One of the things that helped me in my grief process and going through it was kind of appropriating other cultures and the way that they look at grief. Like, I really found a lot of value in the idea of Dia de los Muertos and being able to set aside a day of the year I knew from our personal experience that I did not want to celebrate William and Elliot's birthday on the same day. I mean, of course, it's both of their birthday, but I wanted that to be Elliot's day. So since William passed on Bastille Day, July 14th, that's become William's day. And because I like to keep it separate, everybody finds their own path for this. This is not to say that this is the right thing to do, but this is one of the things that helped me is to know that each year I will have that day to pay my homage to William and to be able to reflect on him and the effect that he had on my life, on all of our lives that he touched. I recommend that people try to find the things that make meaning for them because oftentimes it can end up just feeling very isolating, very alone, and like there's no clear path to take to get to a place where you're starting to feel like you're integrating the loss into your own life story. Right, and for the parents like you who have a surviving twin, in the NICU, they're a surviving triplet, right? Mm-hmm. And so you're having to go back into that setting mm-hmm. day after day. Mm-hmm. And you have to have some fear that you might lose that baby as well. I honestly, you know, mom of a 24-weeker spent four months in the NICU, but really can't quite understand what that would be like to have Mm -hmm. to come back to a place where I had lost one of my babies and to know that fear. So I just want to acknowledge that, how difficult that must be. Mm -hmm. And I hope that the parents acknowledge that it might be very normal that they might not want to 
to go back into the NICU. Now, some may. Some may cling to the other baby and want to be there right away and, sure. and stay. And others might need some time away mm-hmm. um, from, from the NICU setting. So for me personally, we were very lucky that the team at Stanford moved us to a different room after William passed. We weren't in the same room where William and Elliot had been when they were initially born for that first week. I made it my duty to avoid the room where we held William as he passed away and the initial room that they were placed in for the entire remainder of Elliot's stay because every time I even looked at that room, I started to get chills and and have some trauma responses to it. On the last day of Elliot being in the NICU before he transferred to the PICU, the NICU at the hospital had gotten crowded and they moved him back to that room, that room where they initially had been when they were first in the NICU. And I realized very quickly upon walking in that I was having, it, it was one of the only other times that I believe I was having a traumatic flashback where I started having a cold sweat. I started getting taken over. I started to cry. I started to get really stuck in the memory of the night that William passed away. And so I think it's important to, for parents to know if you, do, if you are the parent of surviving multiples, multiple or multiples, it's okay to ask to be moved. You know, sometimes there isn't enough space, unfortunately, so it's not something that I can guarantee can happen at any given hospital, but it's okay to ask because I know from personal experience it can be extremely triggering to be even within proximity of the space where some of these events happen. So it's okay. It's okay to give yourself that space because it's very, very challenging having to stay for that much longer and having to cope with day in and day out going back to the place where hopefully the worst thing that will ever happen in your life happened. Right. Yeah. And and the uh, we we need to be able to process our grief, right? Oftentimes that parent is right back into a traumatic experience with the other baby. Mm-hmm. And so there's not a lot of time and emphasis put on the grief process that mm-hmm. we would normally go through because it's almost like you go right back to work. Right. And so you're right back at at work in the NICU and you haven't had time to even really process the loss. So just wanted to acknowledge that. So how do we prevent ourselves from sinking into depression? I think the most important thing is to acknowledge that grief is an important part of life. And very often as humans, we try to ignore the notion that death is a part of life, that death is a very big part of life, and that it exists every day just in contrast to how we perceive our day-to-day. And so in processing grief, which I don't even know if I like the word process, it's more like it's like telling the story of the grief. And oftentimes, like I said before, I think that other people don't really necessarily want to hear this story. But I can't emphasize enough for people listening that may know someone that's bereaved, that lost a child, of how important it is to speak to that child, regardless of how young they were, how long they were on earth, um, what their personality was. A lot of the time, a lot of the overwhelming feedback that I get is that people feel like they don't want to upset you. They don't want to make you feel bad. But it's actually really warming to know that people besides me and John remember William. And so when people say, you know, oh, it was William's day today or, you know, mention him um, or ask how he was because he didn't get to meet very many people in my family or friend group. It's actually really amazing because, you know, and I do I feel quite a bit, too, that even my work with NICU healing, a lot of it is just to I want to make this 
effigy of remembrance for him because I don't want him to be forgotten. Yeah, I don't think I mentioned that earlier, that you are the founder of NICUHealing.com. Yeah, and, and so the effort, part of the effort behind that is that I knew in knowing William that I never wanted his name to be forgotten. And I knew that I wanted to take a stand for something that I believed in and that he would have believed in that he knew I was doing it for him, just for him. And so that's one of the ways that I found meaning in the whole circumstance is just trying some some way to be able to keep the story alive and his name. You know, I can't tell you how often it's one of those things, too, that it's there is no closure. I think if you talk to any bereaved parent, they'll be able to tell you that. And I can tell you that even two weeks ago, dropping Elliot off at kindergarten, for the first time, I still was in tears the whole way to school, not because it was the bittersweet thing of dropping off William, but because I just imagined what it would be what would it, what it would be like if William was there too right William's first day of school too yeah, right mm-hmm. i I acknowledge that right uh, you know I read from Kira's book earlier, and mm-hmm. Kira you know of course lost zoe they they celebrate Zoe, and she's very much a part of uh Kira's life and her girl's life. And, mm-hmm. But uh, she does talk about those first and those milestones and always thinking that Zoe should have been there and been a part of that. Sure. So, so many bereaved friends that I know have struggled with blaming themselves mm-hmm. for their baby's death. They felt they did something wrong that caused the preterm birth, that they should have sought medical care sooner. Uh, maybe they shouldn't have had the infertility treatments or gone on a business trip, which, you know, they end up going into preterm labor. And so I just think, you know, that's normal. It's a normal part of the grieving process. But how, how do we let go of that self-blame? Well, uh, letting go of self-blame is a tough one because everybody's going to have their own path to doing, to being able to do so. So I think that also embracing yourself, finding that love for yourself, realizing that the love that you have, even for the lost child, is it's extraordinarily strong. And it's something that you often don't realize how strong it is until you're brought to that critical moment. In terms of self-blame, sometimes... I don't know. In my personal experience of grief, it was like everything fell away. You know, even that wasn't there. It was like everything just went dark, like an abyss, you know, like so whereas the blame came in when I was in labor, the blame came in sometimes when I was in Elliot's experience. When it came to William, it was just, it's again, it's, it's hard to even put it into words. It was just everything was gone. One of the things that I found soothing was researching about how animals grieve and how when you look at all these different animal species, they oftentimes take on practices very similar to the way that we do as human beings. And most of the time when humans have witnessed animals grieving, it's generally for the same purpose where it's a mother grieving the child. And so they'll have circumstances where, for example, like a giraffe left its herd so that she could stay with the baby's body, uh, which, you know, puts her at significant risk of death, you know, being away from the herd. So you realize that for a time period, you are in that state of just it's it's grief. 
you know, it helps to hear other stories. It helps to know that you're not alone. But you have to be in it. You yeah, have, you can't. There's no way of getting around that pain. And there's not anything others can do to right. help you. Except listen. And you listen, know? And be there. It's, it's, I think the one thing that others can do is try to refrain as much as possible from saying, well, look at the silver lining on this, because there is no silver lining. There's no silver lining. And so if there's any possibility at all that you can, you know, and I know that it, these statements do not come from a place of intentional harm or or trying to say something dismissive. It's coming from a place of wanting to soothe someone. But it can be, I can't tell you how painful it feels in the moment to be told that there's a silver lining to the death of your child or to be, to have your child be ignored by friend or family groups because nobody wants to upset you. Um, you end up feeling like you're being treated like you're hysterical for going through a very natural process that has to be done. There's no way around it, you know? Well, I wanted to talk a little bit about how we can create some positive memories out mm -hmm. of a very negative, difficult, horrific experience. Mm -hmm. And some of that is knowing what our rights are as parents mm -hmm. of, of a bereaved child, having a little bit of control over making some decisions in a place where we, we feel so out of control. Mm -hmm. So I, I thought it was important just to, you know, talk about a few of the things that we know are really important to be able to have the opportunity to hold and touch our baby. That includes skin to skin mm -hmm. contact. Um, we can bathe the baby and we can hold them for really an extended period of time within reason. Mm -hmm. uh, we can have that baby with us. So I, I, were you able to do that? With William? Yeah, it was it was very lucky. Uh, you know, I do. I feel for parents, too, that when you're in the moment and there doesn't that option isn't, you know, when it's an emergency and that option isn't there. But even my understanding is that even afterward, it can be soothing. Our doctor told us or, you know, he suggested that we choose music to bring. Like I said, I was completely you know, I, I, I was basically dissociative at this point. I didn't know what to think. It was just sort of like, oh, yeah, great. I'll think of some music to bring to my child's death. But my husband, John, was able to re recognize that we both loved Chopin. Uh, so he brought the ballads and we could listen to the ballads with William. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah, that's beautiful. Well, a few other things. Being able to choose their final outfit um, and there are organizations out there that um, provide bereavement gowns and for boys and for girls. Uh, NICU Helping Hands out of Fort Worth is a wonderful organization that provides that. They're incredible. They're they incredible. do just really work. wonderful work. And then, um, you know, a lot of hospitals ha have gowns and outfits that your baby uh, can be given. Taking photographs. I know a lot of parents are very resistant of that, but I think that it's really important, maybe if you don't want to look at them right now, but to have that option later. Maybe you put them on a box and maybe you don't look at them until you're ready. Mm -hmm. um, but I think having having pictures of our babies, having uh, pictures of us with our baby. I remember the nurses suggested these sorts of things, taking the photos and stuff. And uh, I remember in the moment, you know, like I said, I was just sort of like, I can't even be here right now in my body. But I went through the motions because they suggested it. And I'll tell you that a lot of those objects, those things that we ended up having in, in that moment with us, 
ended up becoming the most precious items that are from William's life. You know, so it's definitely something to look into the resources that your hospital provides if you're faced with this type of a circumstance. Right. So you mentioned mementos to name your child. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of people, I don't know if they're hesitant to, to give the name that they had originally picked, mm-hmm. but I think it's really important for them to know that they have that opportunity to bond with him and her to observe your cultural and religious practices. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're able to ask for that and, um, you know, have a private room like you talked about mm-hmm. uh, to be able to have that time with the baby. If you know that there's a possibility for fetal demise or stillbirth, you know, having a birthing plan. Uh, what do you want the day to look like? Like your, your doctor was advising about the music. Who do you want to be there? The photos, the friends, and the family, you know, making those choices. I know very, very difficult choices, but important. You also could request perinatal hospice care if you wanted, uh, if you know there's going to be a fetal demise and you want to take the baby home. And if at all possible to request someone that's trained in perinatal bereavement counseling, unfortunately, you know, not all hospitals have those uh, available, but it's so important for you to have someone, especially if there's someone who's been trained and resolved through sharing, mm-hmm. uh, or if there's a community-based grief organization that you can reach out to. Something that a lot of people do not know, but you are able to bring home your baby after death or to die. It's a much more common practice. A lot of families are not aware of this, but it is, you know, a special time with the baby outside of the hospital or the funeral home. So you can talk with your hospital or your social worker, your patient advocate. There's a great website, uh, whenyourbabydies.com. Uh, that can provide more information. And then spiritual as well as mental health support, finding out what resources are available in your hospital and in your community to support your family. I wanted to just call out an amazing resource for bereaved families is Share Pregnancy and Infant Loss Support. Are you familiar with that organization? Is that Joanne Cacciatore? I think it is. It's the Mm nationalshare.org organization. The Miss Foundation, too, is really wonderful. M-I-S-S. We want to make sure that we'll get that on the mm-hmm. website. We'll put all these on the website for families to access. A bereaved friend shared with me that the hurt does not go away, but it will not be as intense forever if you grieve in a healthy way and find the right support. There's a really wonderful quote, I think, by Elizabeth Edwards, where she talks about how people talk about loss, the loss of a child, as if it's something that you get over. And she talks about how it's not like the loss of something like an object, but rather it's more like losing your leg and learning how to walk without a leg. So it's like the loss is always present with you, I would say, but it's you do get more nimble on your feet, as it were, the more that you get used to it not being there. Yes, I do I do think that it's important to create a space to grieve so that it can be something that you express and, and feel is integrated in your life as opposed to something that may come up in, in unexpected ways or ways that are detrimental. And I think that's really important that, mm-hmm. you know, if you are seeing signs of depression and anxiety disorders, that you seek support as soon as possible. And I think it's really important to remember that every life has meaning and impact. You know, in her lifetime, Zoe came in contact with very few people because of her weakened immune system. But her life 
has touched and impacted the lives of countless Nikki families through Kira's work with the Zoe Rose Memorial Foundation and the Premier Parent Alliance. And, you know, for you, William's life led to Nikki healing. So I just, I think it's really important to acknowledge that these babies impact our lives and the lives of others and every life is to be remembered. If you are a bereaved parent, please know that you're not alone. Peer-to-peer support is an effective tool for helping parents following the loss of a baby. Support from a trained and caring peer mentor can be invaluable in helping you process your grief. To request support, please visit our website at handtohold.org. Kara, I want to thank you again for being part of this podcast series, for being willing to share William's story. I know it's a very vulnerable time for you to be able and willing to open up and share about his death. And I just thank you for being willing to help others and all that you do through NICU Healing and through the Premier Parent Alliance to, and through your private practice just to support other families that now walk in your shoes. You're an amazing person. Oh, thank you so much, Kelly. It's an honor to be here again. And even if it's hard to share the story, even if it makes it so one family feels less isolated and alone, uh, it's worth it. So That's right. That's why we do what we do. Thank you, Kara. Mm-hmm. Our quote to remember today is by Washington Irving. There is a sacredness in tears. They are not the mark of weakness, but of power. They speak more eloquently than 10,000 tongues. They are messengers of overwhelming grief and unspeakable love.